Thank you for joining us here today. It's a privilege to welcome so many patients to Washington for an important announcement about advancing kidney health in America. Ohio is lucky to have a deep bench of great physicians. But more than that, Ohio is lucky to have physicians who, beyond being formidable clinicians, are politically active, championing better care for their patients and putting the time in to make sure that better care is available to more and more Ohioans. In my view, those are the physicians that we need now more than ever. On today's episode, we talk with a local physician who's leading the way in the area of kidney care. This is Prognosis Ohio, WCB's Health Policy and Politics Report. I'm your host, Dan Skinner. Each week, we bring you a roundup of healthcare developments in our state. Each week as well, we share with you an interview with someone in Ohio who's either making a difference in or has a unique perspective on health or healthcare in Ohio. Before I turn to today's guest, though, it's time for our news roundup. First up, the recent mass shootings in El Paso and Dayton, like other mass shootings in recent memory, have shaken our communities. In our last episode, I interviewed Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley. Among other things, we talked about how the recent tornadoes that hit Dayton posed real health challenges to the city. I began the interview by asking a question that has taken on renewed meaning in the past few weeks. Namely, how is Dayton doing? on this podcast. How are you? How is Dayton doing? How how are you doing? (laughs) Uh, Well, I think Dayton is resilient and it has a grit about it that has been through a lot. And we're proud of that through our history. And so I think this summer will be another thing um, that is a time point, particularly with... Little did we know at that time, of course, that Mayor Whaley and her city would soon be hit by another tragedy, as nine Daytonians were gunned down in the city's Oregon district on August 4th. While Mayor Whaley has been gaining much-deserved national attention for her leadership with the opioid crisis, this tragic event has now put her on the national stage in calling attention to the public health crisis of gun violence as well. I just want to say that she's doing a fantastic job. We're proud to call her a friend of the show. I hope that listeners will go back and check out our last episode and learn a little bit about the great city of Dayton. Perhaps another question we should start asking is, how are we feeling? On Wednesday, the USA Today building was evacuated after an unconfirmed report of a gunman. On Tuesday, the sound of dirt bikes backfiring near Times Square in New York caused hundreds of people to flee from the area in a panic, mistaking the sounds for gunshots. Similar mass panics occurred in a mall in Utah and a Walmart in Louisiana this week. Boston's local NPR affiliate, WBUR, aired a segment of Here and Now with Jeremy Hobson earlier this week, outlining the, quote, vicarious trauma that mass shootings can trigger. Dr. Arthur Evans, a psychologist and CEO of the American Psychological Association, noted that mass shootings can make the public more anxious. But he also argues that we as a nation are experiencing a form of PTSD for the public trauma we witness on a frequent basis. I have to be honest with you. I'm in a place where I'm just assuming Columbus is next, or at least not too far off. We are a nation on edge, we're a state on edge, and we've got to do something about it. Yet, sometimes in all of this, another public health crisis gets lost in these mass shootings. Though we know that every day 100 Americans are killed by guns, we often forget that nearly two-thirds of these gun deaths are suicides. In fact, the gun suicide rate in the U.S. is 10 times that of other high-income countries. 
Access to a gun increases the risk of death by suicide by three times. And gun suicides are concentrated in states with high rates of gun ownership, states just like Ohio. Finally, we need to talk some policy. Governor Mike DeWine has announced his support for legislation, including a so-called red flag law, which would allow courts to remove firearms from those who appear to be a danger to themselves or others. Governor DeWine also announced his support for stronger background checks, the monitoring of social media by law enforcement, increased socioeconomic learning in schools, and increased access to psychiatric care. State lawmakers have begun introducing red flag legislation and other bills aimed at preventing gun violence, which we'll be covering in future news roundups. These are good first steps. To quote the words of those who attended the vigil in Dayton, though, after the shooting, I hope Republicans in our state are serious about doing something this time. I'll believe it when I see it. Ray Bignall, MD, is an assistant professor in pediatrics in the Division of Nephrology at Nationwide Children's Hospital and at The Ohio State University College of Medicine. Dr. Bignall received a Bachelor of Science in Biology from Howard University, a Doctorate of Medicine from Meharry Medical College in Nashville, and a Certificate in Health Policy at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Center for Health Policy, also at Meharry. He completed his general pediatrics residency, clinical fellowship in nephrology, and a National Institutes of Health postdoctoral research fellowship, all at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Dr. Bignall's academic interests include social determinants of health, population health, and health disparities in pediatric kidney disease and transplantation. Dr. Bignall keeps really busy. He's active with a range of national organizations, including the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Society of Nephrology, and a variety of community and child health advocacy efforts, including the Healthy Neighborhoods, Healthy Families Initiative here in Columbus and the Congressional Black Caucus Health Brain Trust. I spoke with Dr. Bignall at Nationwide Children's Hospital in late July. Among other things, we talked about President Trump's recent announcement about major changes to kidney care in the United States. Okay, now to our conversation. Dr. Ray Bignall, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks, Dan. I'm excited to be here. You were in D.C. recently for the president's announcement about major changes in how we address our needs with kidney procurement and dialysis. So I wonder if we could just start off a little bit um, for our listeners. Tell us a little bit about what this proposal is about and why you're jazzed about it, even though you have some uh, concerns. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it might even be a good idea to take a step back first and talk a little bit about what kidneys are. Uh, I find that in the community, there's a lot of misunderstanding and even just simply lack of knowledge about kidney disease in general and uh, kidney health as well. Oh, so this is high value stuff. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to learn what kidneys are. for the. You're, that's Absolutely. Great. No, I'm, I'm excited to be uh, your teacher today. So um, kidneys are immensely important vital organs. They're responsible for what we in medicine call homeostasis. That's basically a fancy word for balance. And that's essentially what allows your body to carry out all of the processes it needs to carry out in a day. 25% of your circulating blood volume travels to your kidney. So that tells you just how valuable your body 
thinks that your kidneys are. If you think about all the organs everywhere in your body, it reserves an entire quarter of your circulating blood volume for the kidneys. And uh, your kidneys are incredibly important. They clean your blood of toxins and waste. They regulate your uh, body fluids. They help maintain the proper concentration of electrolytes in your blood, which are important to allow you to breathe and move and think and fight infections and stay alive. And, you know, they're also the control center for your blood pressure. A lot of people are surprised when they come to see me, a nephrologist, a kidney doctor, uh, for their child's high blood pressure. Why am I seeing a kidney doctor? Well, yeah. that's why, uh, because your kidneys are responsible for controlling your blood pressure. Um, they even stimulate the production of red blood cells uh, through a hormone known as erythropoietin. This hormone is what actually sends the signal to your bone marrow to make new red blood cells, and those red blood cells will carry oxygen all throughout your body to carry out all the other important uh, jobs that are responsible there. So your kidneys are super duper important. And because they're so important to your body, uh, they are uniquely susceptible to injury or damage. So for instance, the leading causes of kidney disease in the United States, by and large, are diabetes and hypertension. Cardiovascular disease is both a risk factor of, uh, excuse me, a risk factor for and a complication of kidney disease. And, and even cancer patients can have kidney disease either as a result of their cancer itself uh, or often a result of the therapies. The chemotherapy that they require is often nephrotoxic. It's right, toxic like to the kidneys. Chemotherapy themselves. goes in there and just kind of doesn't discriminate as it makes its way through the body. Absolutely, right? absolutely. And, and you know, um, autoimmune conditions, Things like sickle cell disease can also affect your kidney health. And then while it's rare, children can also be affected by kidney disease, either from acquired causes or uh, many of the same causes that you'll see in, uh, in adults. So it's no surprise then that 40 million Americans are living with kidney disease, including 700,000 who need dialysis or a kidney transplant. We call that state end-stage kidney disease. Mm -hmm. Some people will call it end-stage renal disease, though yeah. that's a term we're trying to move away from. Why um, is that? Just because it's not meaningful to I think I think the two are synonymous, but end-stage kidney disease, I think, is much more understandable by the general public. And uh, in general, medicine is trying to move towards using more standard terms that folks can understand um, you know, for uh, patient education reasons and so right. forth. Right. It standardizes things for everyone. Specifically in Ohio, there are 1.5 million Ohioans who are living with kidney disease, 20,000 who have kidney failure and are on dialysis, and another 2,200 or so who are on our kidney transplant wait list. So this presidential executive order then and the announcement by Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar, how does that intervene into that broader context that you just took us through? Absolutely. So uh, the federal government has kind of been all in for the care of end-stage kidney disease patients since 1973. And this uh, Advancing American Kidney Health Initiative is probably the biggest policy announcement in the kidney health space since that time, so almost 50 years ago. And for context for folks, I mean, that, mm -hmm. this was a really radical moment because really the first time that the federal government set out to just cover a specific That's right. disease, right? That's right. And one of the main reasons, which I, you know, we, this is very familiar to us today in, in our health policy climate, is because 
nobody cared about the issue. They weren't funding it properly. It was expensive, right? That's so you, right. That's a role for the federal government at the time during the Nixon administration. That's right. In the early days of dialysis, there were so few centers that could offer this life literally life-saving, life-extending therapy for individuals with kidney disease. There were so few centers that they actually had panels of individuals who would deem who would receive dialysis for that day, that week. Um, and you can imagine the, how fraught that kind of a process was. There was actually an individual who, as part of congressional testimony, dialyzed on uh, the floor in Congress. Wow. And it was part of that uh, the strong advocacy community from patients and kidney health providers some 50 years ago that prompted the Nixon administration and our federal government to start thinking about how we can provide this therapy for everyone who needs it, regardless of their ability to pay. So can you tell, walk us a little yeah. bit through then what's going on now? Absolutely. So, you know, part of the, the challenge, you know, we mentioned the good news already, is that the federal government is helping to ensure that everyone who needs kidney care can get it. And that's an important and great thing. The bad news is that it's super expensive for our federal government. So end-stage kidney disease care costs the federal government about $35 billion, with a B, <laughs> every year. So 7% of the Medicare spending budget is spent on only 1% of beneficiaries. And it's become a real significant problem for our federal budgets. Uh, with the epidemic of obesity and chronic diseases like diabetes and hypertension, it's only getting worse. More bad news is that there's actually very little market-driven incentive for innovation in the kidney care health space. Um, so the way that we dialyze patients is basically been the same for decades with very little innovation. Uh, and so the market would serve patients best by prioritizing things like prevention mm -hmm. with the ultimate goal of all kidney health professionals and patients being preventing disease in the first place. Uh, kidney transplantation, mm -hmm. uh, with, which is the gold standard for improving outcomes in ESKD patients. And then certainly innovation. Uh, with new dialysis machines, new therapies, new diagnostics that are difficult to come across in our current market-based incentive climate. And here in Ohio, I mean, you just drive around and you see what the lack of, of competition in that market looks like, right? You have Fresenius and you have DeVita and essentially nothing else. They have almost all of the market. So um, the, right now, I mean, I, I saw that those two companies claim that they're, they're excited about this initiative because they care about kidney patients. But um, clearly what the president is talking about would have to make them change their model. Yeah, there's definitely going to be a lot of change that all facets of the kidney health community are going to have to deal with. The large dialysis organizations like DeVita and Fresenius are two organizations that are very significant players in the kidney health space. Uh, and they indeed uh, will, will have a lot of changes to make uh, based on, on what some of the things that were proposed. So the goal is to refocus on more kidney transplantation, moving mm -hmm. away from yeah. in-center dialysis and moving more dialysis mm -hmm. into people's homes. Mm -hmm. Why haven't we had more in-home dialysis to date? Yeah, so, you know, this executive order takes a few crucial steps. 
towards aligning incentives for kidney care and innovation with the best outcomes for patients and their quality of life. And so just like you mentioned, uh, a few of the goals include standardizing the organ procurement process um, to reduce the percentage of discarded organs and increase the number of transplants, uh, removing financial barriers for living kidney donors as well. Uh, But it also encourages innovation with the development of an artificial kidney, which is a huge goal of our field, and then uh, restructuring payment models to incentivize prevention of kidney disease and encourage home dialysis and kidney transplant. And so, you know, when we think about why we don't see more home dialysis taking place in the United States, I think that there are a, uh, a few reasons why that hasn't happened yet. Um, you know, why is it a good idea in the first place, right? Like we have all these in-center facilities, you think they should be just as good. Well, in-center dialysis can be physically draining for individual patients, uh, financially disruptive. You know, it requires you to leave your home, leave your job, go to a center three to four times a week for three or four hours at a time to dialyze. You often feel very fatigued and not well after you're done dialyzing. Right, you don't just pop back to work after dialysis. Exactly, so it can be a real challenge from that regard as well. And then it's overall a lower quality of life. Home dialysis is a great alternative. It's way more conducive to a patient's quality of life. It allows them to dialyze while they sleep Mm -hmm. and then to be able to wake up and then uh, go to work. Or in the case of my pediatric patients, wake up and go to play or go to school, things that they would need to to kind of function uh, and develop properly. So, so some of the barriers to in-home dialysis have been noted as training for clinicians. Uh, several of my adult clinician colleagues have noted that it's actually not a real priority of a lot of training programs is training in home dialysis. It's so, so much of medicine is about these controlled spaces and we've become correct. so dependent on them. I mean, I know this was also a priority of the Kasich administration, not in the nephrology space, mm-hmm. but uh, moving into the home and for a long time, that was seen as this kind of luxurious thing. But actually, we've learned that it could save money and help patients. It saves money. It's better for patients. And it's often better for their health outcomes as well. A lot of patients just don't know about their home dialysis options. And that's definitely something that this executive order seeks to increase education for patients. And then the real sort of crux of the proposal is to change the payment incentives to help incentivize providers to encourage more home dialysis so that our incentive structure is aligned with the outcomes that we want for kidney patients. So how about a little bit on the transplant side, just moving through some of the technical aspects before we get to uh, the policy in a little bit broader way. Tell us a little bit about the, the hopes that you have. I mean, also, aside from transplantation, you know, you've schooled me on the fact that pediatric nephrology is very different from adult nephrology. That's We're right. not going to get too into the weeds on that today. Sure. But uh, there are a number of different aspects, and there's also extraordinary uh, disparity, uh, racial, economic, other disparity within the transplantation, mm-hmm. the system. Can you just talk a little bit about what you hope will come? Like, how does transplant look different if this works? Yeah. I mean, without a doubt, we could sit here and have a whole different podcast on kidney transplantation and some of the benefits and challenges there. Well, that's we don't give that stuff away for free. That's the premium content yes. <laughs> for the podcast. It's a special subscription. It's a subscriber service. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, in general, uh, kidney transplant is the best therapeutic 
outcome for patients with end-stage kidney disease. Uh, it's the goal that we want to move all of our patients towards. Patients who get kidney transplants do much better. They have better mortality. They have better quality of life. They have better overall health outcomes than patients who have to remain on dialysis. So we definitely want to find ways of incentivizing patients to get kidney transplants. And this uh, executive order and the policies that the administration has rolled out, it definitely helps to push for and incentivize kidney transplants in some unique ways. So when we think about kidney transplants, we often think about them as living donor transplants and deceased donor transplants. And there's some benefits from these policies in both domains. For living donors, this policy will help to uh, provide financial support for lost wages and childcare for individuals who uh, either are donating to a family member or even altruistically donating mm -hmm. to a stranger. It helps to provide uh, increased education uh, to help dispel some of the confusion around being a living kidney donor. The process can be super arduous, so helping to smooth out some of those barriers will hopefully be really helpful. So a lot of really exciting things on the horizon for living donors. Deceased donor kidney transplantation is another area where there are some challenges. So um, even if a person indicates that they want to be an organ donor and uh, we have an opportunity to procure kidneys from them, uh, there can still be challenges. So the quality of the kidney might not be very good, mm -hmm. depending on the way in which the individual became deceased. Uh, and then even if the kidney is procured, a lot of your listeners might be surprised to hear that one out of every five kidneys that is successfully procured for transplant is discarded mm. for a variety of different medical uh, reasons and considerations. So finding ways to decrease the number of organ discards is at the center of, uh, of these policy changes. Yeah, we can't afford to have that number be that high at all. I mean, exactly. it's hard enough to get them in the first place. Absolutely. You know, the stigma around being an organ donor is often a very big challenge, a very big barrier for certain communities. Mm -hmm. And it can, in many ways, perpetuate disparities that already exist, especially within minority communities, with regards to the availability of organs for transplant. Yeah, and building trust is something that you've developed a reputation here in Central Ohio for being actively involved in, you know, as an African-American physician, mm -hmm. right, but also somebody really actively engaged in the African-American community. Mm -hmm. There are specific issues to work through. We've talked about some of them on this podcast mm -hmm. uh, around cancer care. I mean, trust is lacking in medicine in general, and then you compound that with various histories and other aspects. The challenges are enough on their own without these histories, so we have to do everything we can to work through them. Absolutely. You know, I will sometimes lecture medical students and undergrads at The Ohio State University about uh, the challenges that um, exist around child health disparities and health disparities in general. In medicine, we often like to talk about the Tuskegee syphilis study as an example of why communities of color mistrust uh, the healthcare industry in general. But I like to remind folks that you don't have to go so far back. <laughs> right, right. If you consider this, you know, the uh, the 60s and 70s far back, you you could just look at, for instance, Serena Williams and her yeah. recent experience giving birth, where she had to demand of her physicians a CT scan when they found a blood clot yeah. uh, that could have killed her. So 
stigma in the uh, in communities of color and the African American community in particular is definitely well founded and uh, justified. Um, so cutting through that, educating providers is a real challenge that I think our entire industry, our entire community should be up for. So I think some of the things that kids will definitely benefit from are the increased availabilities of organs for kidney transplant through some of the proposals that we've talked about. So those today. proposals will will hit kids too in terms of kidney availability. Absolutely. The more transplantation we can do, the more kidneys in the pool, so to speak, uh, the better everyone will do, including kids. Mm -hmm. And to be clear, children do get special priorities for kidney transplants. There are a lot of complex formulaic ways in which it's determined who gets what kidneys and when. But in general, children are prioritized for the best kidneys. And the idea being, we want to take care of kids first. Um, you know, children have a long life to live, and we want to try to get them the organs that will help carry them into that long life. Right. So absolutely, the organ procurement, uh, the organ transplant end of this proposal will help them. Can you talk a little bit about just what you hope Ohio will get out of this and how this could, if successfully funded and engaged as, as promised, um, how this could transform our state? Absolutely. So I think that there are several things for Ohioans to be really excited about with this executive order and uh, with these proposals. Ohio is really uniquely situated. I mean, we're one of the few states in the country with this like almost disproportionate conglomerate of fabulous Healthcare facilities. Yeah. I, we've got fabulous rural healthcare facilities, fabulous community health centers. Thank you um, for saying that, by the way, about <laughs> our rural healthcare facilities. No, I they think get a lot of nasty stuff said by people who don't really understand rural healthcare and how many great people there are working out there. Well, I get to work with rural health providers all the time. Here at Nationwide Children's Hospital, we collect patients from all over the state. And in fact, a lot of our patients come from rural parts of South Central and yeah. Southeastern Ohio. So you know, there are some really exciting things, I think, for all of us, whether you're in Columbus or you're in Chillicothe yeah. or you're in Findlay or, you know, wherever you may be. Now I you're think. just showing off your oh. geography. <laughs> but, yeah. No, no, but I definitely think that there's a lot of things to be excited about. So, for instance, from a prevention standpoint, perhaps no other institution, not just in the state, but in the United States, is doing more to study uh, ways that we can prevent kidney uh, disease in children than Nationwide Children's Hospital. We have eight NIH-funded grants studying pediatric kidney disease, and most of them are studying the sorts of pediatric kidney diseases that result in the highest number of patients who need end-stage kidney disease care. Mm -hmm. So we're extremely excited to have you know, this huge number of well-funded research scientists, close to $10 million of NIH funding that our federal government has entrusted with Nationwide Children's Hospital to do this very important work. And there's also some really exciting innovation happening in the state of Ohio. So I spent the last seven years in my pediatric training at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, which is like Nationwide Children's Hospital, one of the best children's hospitals in the country. And there are some incredibly exciting end-stage kidney disease innovations happening there. One of my former mentors, uh, Dr. Stuart Goldstein, is part of a team of researchers who are leading an innovative kidney dialysis device designed specifically for babies mm. to be able to dialyze them. You know, all of the dialysis machines that we use in children today, actually none of them are designed for kids. 
they've all been designed for adults. And so we adapt them. And in some cases, we kind of jerry-rig them for use in kids. And to me, that's unacceptable. We should have pediatric-specific medical devices to care for pediatric patients. And this uh, unique dialysis device that he and a team of scientists from around the world are developing uh, is a really huge step forward. And we are all in the nephrology community across the country very eager for this device to win FDA approval. We're leaning on our members of Congress to help streamline this process for devices and therapeutics and diagnostics like the ones being developed at Cincinnati Children's and here at Nationwide Children's and across our state uh, so that children can have access to these life-saving therapies just like adults do. Well, Dr. Bignall, I want to thank you for the work you do for the kids of Ohio, for the people of Ohio, and for being out there, being an active voice. And I hope you'll come back on and talk to us uh, in the future when more developments happen, and I'm sure there are going to be some. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and I'm excited to come back anytime. Thanks Thanks. so much, Dan. All right. Take care. Thank you. This episode of Prognosis Ohio is hosted by Dan Skinner and produced by Dan Skinner, Kyle Rosenberger, and Mark Franz. Jory Gomes assists with background research and copy. You can subscribe to Prognosis Ohio through WCBE's webpage, where you can also find the show notes for this episode. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and really wherever you get your podcasts. We'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review so we can continue to grow the show. You can also follow us on Twitter at, at @prognosisohio and email us at prognosisohio at gmail.com. Finally, we're working hard to continue to grow the show to make it an increasingly solid foundation for ongoing conversations about important issues in health and healthcare right here in Ohio. We're really excited that we're gaining more listeners with every episode. If you're interested in underwriting the podcast, sharing information about your event, your organization, your book, your product, or something else, please do be in touch. Okay, until next time.